0: Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast. This is episode number four, entitled The Normans Make an Indelible Impression in Ireland. You may become a patron of my podcast by visiting the website landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. In any event, please continue to listen, follow, and like. Thank you. The redeeming feature of the Norman conquest in Ireland was their industry in building new castles, monasteries, and flour mills. Great progress was made in all sections of industry. Forests were felled and the timber used commercially, the Danes having invented and made the first saws for felling trees. More land was tilled and the crops harvested with new improved methods. New walled towns were built and new ports constructed in Drogheda, Galway and New Ross. And the old ports of Dublin and Waterford were further developed and trade and markets expanded. This new prosperity meant that vast sums of money could be collected for the English monarchs. So the Irish nobility had a meeting on the River Erne in 1258 to attempt to revive the old High Kingship. The King of Thomond and the King of Connacht and other royal princes of Ireland proposed Brian O'Neill for this honoured position. But O'Donnell of Donegal would not acknowledge him and McCarty of Desmond did not attend. Many of the Irish clans in Leinster, Ulster, Munster, Meath, and Breffney, which were under Norman rule at the time, provided the Normans with the bulk of their fighting forces, serving as mercenaries and retained bands. Thus, most of the battles between Normans and Irish at that time would have seemed more like battles between the Irish themselves. Unfortunately, Brian O'Neill was defeated and killed at the Battle of Don Patrick in 1260. No country in Europe at that time was free from some sort of strife. The war between France and England, known as the Hundred Years' War from 1337 to 1453, resulted in the total loss of English possessions in France. The Swiss War of Independence raged, as did the Babylonian captivity or the period between 1309 and 1376, during which the popes resided in France at Avignon. The fourth of the Avignon popes, Gregory XI, returned to Rome in 1377. Following his death in 1378, the Italian pope Urban VI was chosen, but the French elected their own, Clement Seventh, who remained at Avignon. This breach between the rival cardinals was finally healed when Martin V was chosen at the Council of Constance in 1418. Edward III, King of England, was severely criticised by Pope John XII when he was informed by a deputation of Irish princes led by Donald O'Neill that papal bulls were extracted by fraud and false pretenses from his predecessors. Popes Adrian and Alexander, which had led to the most awful persecutions and suffering of the Irish people in their own land. Now the Irish princes came together, united in their purpose to present a memorial to the Pope, informing him of their intention to attempt to rid their country of the intolerable English rule and dominance. Their plan was to invite the brother of King Robert Bruce to assist in their efforts to achieve their purpose to subdue conquer and drive the royal enemy from ireland for all time the pope had no love of the scottish king he warned them against having anything to do with the bruce brothers and threatened the princes with excommunication if they persisted the irish and scots regarded themselves as celtic relatives over many years Each sympathised with the other in their wars against the common enemy, England. This empathy grew in intensity after the Anglo-Norman invasion of Ireland. The Irish backed their Scottish relatives and rejoiced at their Bannockburn victory. The Ulster Irish aided Robert Bruce in his wars and sheltered him in adversity. After one defeat, he was sheltered at Ratlin Island off the Antrim coast. Where he married Elizabeth, the daughter of Richard de Burgo, second Earl of Ulster, known as the Red Earl. The popes who were the subject of complaints from the Irish princes, led by Donald O'Neill, were unusual in that one, Adrian, was the only English born pope ever, and that Alexander VI was the father of Lucretia and Cesara Borgia whose infamy had spread throughout Europe. It was not unusual for popes to father children then, as the free reign given to sexual urges was not frowned upon even for the vicar of Christ, who raised his own to attain the highest positions of power. Cesare Borgia was the most beloved son of Pope Alexander. At the age of 25, he had ambitions to become the king of Italy, but his nature was that of a tyrant. He was cruel and evil in every way, not stopping at rape and incest, jealousy and fratricide. He murdered his own brother because he observed him being affectionate with brotherly love to his sister Lucrezia, who in her own right had earned the name of infamy and reproach. It is interesting to note that Cesare employed Leonardo da Vinci to assist in his war efforts. The famous artist observed his employer engaged in nefarious situations from time to time, but kept quiet for fear of reprisals, as he knew and feared him. When at last Cesare arrived in Rome to celebrate his warring victories, the Pope Alexander had died. But his son was more intent on a victory celebration than a funeral. So he arranged a large banquet. This was to be his doom, as his banquet became his own funeral. One of his once faithful retainers, fearing for his own life, poisoned his glass of wine and killed him. Leonardo's masterpiece, The Last Supper, deserves a mention. It was painted on a plastered wall where it will remain as a testament to his genius. His cartoon in red chalk of St Anne was auctioned at Christie's of London in July 1993 and was sold for £4 million sterling. Salvator Mundi, or Saviour of the World, which depicts Jesus Christ, believed to be by Leonardo da Vinci, sold for $450.3 million in New York in November 2017, blazing a new world record for the most expensive work of art sold at auction. Lost for years, only to be found at a regional auction in 2005, it is one of fewer than 20 da Vinci paintings generally accepted as being from the Renaissance master's own hand, according to Christie's. The Normans, meanwhile, were submerging their own identity and taking on an Irish appearance. They now favoured the Irish way of life and changed their names to look more Irish by deleting the French prefix, de or de, such as de burgo became burke and other deliberate name changes at the time were de Grosse became grace and de lacy became lacy. Some kept the prefix and are still to be found today in Ireland. For example, de courcy, de lacy etc. Other new family names were added to the list of Gaelic Irish names when the Bruce brothers came from Scotland to assist their Irish relatives. They had many victories from 1314 to 1317 when famine devastated their victorious march through Ireland to the walls of Limerick. When they arrived at Limerick famine had gripped the land and discipline broke down because of the terrible hunger suffered by the troops. The awful incessant rainfall destroyed crops and animals and historic reports tell us they were forced to eat dead animals and human corpses. So without proper food to provision the troops discipline came to an end. They struggled to reach the only place where there was an abundance of wholesome food, and that was the waters of the River Shannon. The Scottish troops wandered along the Shannon banks from Limerick to Athlone, living on salmon caught in the rivers and lakes, and occasionally stopping at a friendly farmhouse, where they were fed and bedded down in the barn. They were accepted once their identity as gallowed lasses, was established. The Galad Lasses were mercenary warriors who were members of the Norse Gaelic clans of Scotland between the mid-13th century and late 16th century. They helped on the land and remained until harvest time of 1318 when the weather changed that year and the crops were particularly good. The extra helping hands were welcomed and soon they settled in and became like members of the family. This led to daughters of the household being attracted to their Scottish cousins and soon many marriages took place. Today in that area can be found familiar Scottish-Irish names such as Macintyre, Burns, MacDonald and many more too numerous to mention. On the 14th of October, 1318, at the hill of Foucard, near Dundalk, two armies faced each other in battle. The Anglo-Norman force with fresh troops from England, which was led by de Birmingham, while the Scottish were headed by Edward Bruce. It was to be a very unequal struggle because of the superior forces of the Anglo-Normans. Edward Bruce's troops dispersed in dismay, and later when his brother Robert landed with reinforcements he was met and informed of Edward's defeat. He returned immediately to Scotland, saddened and dejected at the defeat and death of Edward, whose body is buried in the local graveyard. Thus ended the first grand effort of Ireland to become an independent country, with the hope of expelling the English invader. Many of the Scottish lasses remained behind and their names are to be found, particularly in the northern counties to this day. The English king now took measures to guard against the reoccurrence of such a formidable danger in the future. On St. Patrick's Day, 1328, a treaty was signed in which it was stipulated that in the event of further war in Ireland their respective kings would not assist each other's rebel forces or subjects. Ireland had played for or fought for a great prize and lost so from then on the most repressive laws were enacted to keep the Irish nation truly English in spirit in language, laws, manners and customs. The London government resolved to enforce the most stringent measures for this purpose under their King Edward the However, there was a backlash from the Anglo-Normans domiciled in Ireland. Those who had adopted the easy going ways of the noble Irish families and intermarried they were living their lives as the Irish did in every way and became more Irish than the natives. All of this was noticed in London by the King and his Council of Ministers, who were not happy with this state of affairs and set about planning to prevent it, even though the Anglo-Normans professed allegiance to the English Crown. The King's Lord Deputy Sir John Morris, summoned them to meet him in Dublin to discuss matters. But they didn't attend and instead they immediately held a meeting in Kilkenny in November 1342 and proposed a strong objection to which the king was obliged to change his stringent measures. So he played them at their own game and waited for an opportunity to arise eight years later. William III sent his son, Lionel, to Ireland as Lord Lieutenant, where he also tried to succeed to the empty title of the Earl of Ulster and Lord of Connacht, and to grab all the possessions which lawfully followed the holder of those titles. Lionel taught to force his claim because of his marriage to Elizabeth de Burgo, Elizabeth was born at Carrig Fergus Castle near Belfast, the only child of William Don de Burg, Third Earl of Ulster, and Maud of Lancaster, Countess of Ulster. She was the last of the senior legitimate line of the descendants of William de Burg. but when Lionel attempted to take them by force of arms, he was defeated by the Irish and had to retreat to Dublin. He now sought the assistance of the Anglo-Normans and in a clever move granted titles and privileges and knighthoods to some of the most powerful commoners. Lionel arrived in Dublin in 1361 and in November of the following year he was created Duke of Clarence, while his father made an abortive attempt to secure for him the Crown of Scotland. His efforts to secure an effective authority over his Irish lands were only moderately successful. After holding a parliament at Kilkenny, which passed the celebrated Statute of Kilkenny in 1366, he dropped the task in disgust, and returned to England. This was around the time of Thomas Aquinas, 1224 to 1274, who espoused that it was fine to sell something for profit, as long as the money was put to good use. And he put forward the idea of the human economy, where some people work the land, some people pray, and others fight for the king. The Statute of Kilkenny set out that only the English language is to be spoken. Gaelic and French were outlawed. Also that nothing of the manners or fashions of the Irish should be continued under penalties and confiscations. That all intermarriages, fosterings, friends, godparenting, and buying or selling with the Irish shall be regarded as treason. That only English names, fashions, and manners shall be reverted to and tolerated. That Brehan laws are now illegal that the Irish shall not pasture their cattle on lands held by the English, that the English shall not employ for entertainment Irish rhymers, minstrels or newsmen, that no Irish man shall be admitted to any ecclesiastical benefice or religious house within the English-held districts. This was the first, by statute, of many attempts by the English, to exterminate the native Irish for whatever reason and they were successful over the next five or six centuries in ending the lives of millions on this island of Ireland. In 1367 the Statute of Kilkenny aroused fierce anger among the native Irish clans. They once again asserted their rightful place in their own land when they had time to realize the full concept of what the new English laws meant for them. They organized against this law and drew up a plan of action to attempt to defeat the terms of this unjust statute. They came together in a united body. They overran the outposts. They hunted the Anglo-Norman barons Destroyed the castles and reoccupied their own land almost to the walls of Dublin. The clans united as never before against the common foe, laying aside their private feuds and family rows for a time to now accomplish the destruction of their enemy. In 1369, in County Limerick, the Lord Justice, the Earl of Desmond, led a large army against the combined forces. Of O'Brien of Thomond and O'Connor of Connacht, but was heavily defeated. In Meath, O'Farrelly, the chieftain of Annally, levelled all before him. The O'Moors, Cavanaghs, O'Burns, and O'Toole's went forward in victory in Leinster. The O'Neills once more raised the standard of the Red Hand of Ulster in the north. The native Irish clans now made fresh gains in every area to the consternation of the English of the Pale. This was a term used in the late 14th century to describe a border or boundary and was written in English Acts of Parliament. The obnoxious statute of Kilkenny was deemed unworkable and was held in abeyance, slumbering until at some future date to be awakened and used. In 1375, young Art MacMurrah Cavanagh inherited all his father's estate and was elected to succeed his father at the young age of 16 years. He was a brave young warrior and had proved himself in many battles. He was an Irish king who is generally regarded as the most formidable of the later kings of Leinster. During his 42-year reign, he dominated the Anglo-Norman settlers of Leinster. He married Elizabeth Leville, widow of Sir John Staunton of Clane. She was the only daughter of Sir Robert Leville, and through her father, the heiress of the Anglo-Norman barony of Nara. He claimed her inheritance in full, even though, obviously forfeited under the Statute of Kilkenny, according to English law. But this did not stop Young Art's onward march. In 1392, King Richard of England had plans to try again to conquer Ireland. So in October of that year, he landed with a large army at Waterford. Before attempting war, he summoned the Irish princes and made them a proposition to the effect that if they gave their lands and chieftaincies to him, he in turn would bestow on them royal pensions and English titles. This insidious proposal was rejected. The English king became enraged and threatened immediate war on young Art and the other Irish chiefs. The following day, the English troops set to do battle against Art and his Irish followers, but in their haste to try and overcome the Irish, They went astray and got stuck in the bogs while the fearless Irish defended the mountain passes. Then the weather worsened and to add to the King's worry, Art took full advantage of the situation. The King's army was trapped and lost in the dense forest and bogland. There was only one way open to the King and that was to parley with Art. So he sent a dispatch rider asking for leave be allowed to proceed to Dublin unmolested, which Art foolishly agreed to. Some months later, Art received a royal invitation, telling him that the King wished to discuss terms with him. Art presented himself in front of the King, unaware that the treachery plotted against him. Three of his chieftains were held hostage, and Art was required to promise to submit before taking his leave. Sometime later, Art was invited to a Norman castle, in a friendly gesture, to a lavish feast in his honour. But not long after his arrival, an attempt was made to murder him. Now he at least knew that he was dealing with a faithless, treacherous foe. It was then he decided to challenge the full power of England's army in Ireland. He outmatched them, even though the ablest generals with large well-trained forces were pitted against him. He outmatched their best endeavours again and again. On July the 20th, 1398, at the Battle of Kenlis in County Carlo, Art defeated Roger Mortimer, the heir presumptive to the English crown, whose premature removal was one of the causes which contributed to the revolution in England a year or two later, King Richard, now exasperated, decided to mount another campaign from England to subdue the Irish Thorn. He set out with another vast army and landed in Waterford. On landing he sent a message to Art demanding him to surrender or face the consequences. Art decided to position his forces at Idrone and await this new army of the English King. But first he sent all the women and children, the feeble and old, with their cattle, food and father, into the protection of the forests. King Richard arrived with his army to do battle, once more. But his vast army were unable to penetrate far into the tangled and impenetrable scrubwood, and found themselves hemmed in by bogs, quagmires and mountains. The king and all his men thus defeated again, returned to Dublin, where he offered one hundred gold marks to anyone who would bring art to him, dead or alive. Richard now mounted a fresh campaign of three divisions of his army to try and accomplish the capture or death of art, but the most urgent news reached him from England, and so he cancelled his plans and returned home at once. Richard's greed treachery and war in Ireland had cost him his crown, and eventually his life, where at Pontefract Castle he met a cruel death. The rulers changed in England, the House of Lancaster taking the seat of power, while art carried on in his victorious ways. In the year 1406 he recaptured the castles of Camelins, Ferns, and Enniscorty. The Duke of Lancaster, the new Lord-Lieutenant of Ireland, prepared an army to set out southwards against Art and his allies, who put an army in the field of equal numbers, led by O'Burn and O'Nolan. They met to do battle on the slopes of Inchicore and in the valley of the River Liffey, near Dublin. Fierce combat took place in which Art was once again victorious. The Duke was taken from the battlefield wounded, and the surrounding land strewn with dead and wounded. This was the last battle of the English might against the Irish, led by brave young Art MacMurrow, whose reign spread over forty years. He died at New Ross, aged sixty, on January the 12th, 1417. Meanwhile, England was in turmoil during the period 1420-1520. to in the great civil war between the White Rose of York and the Red Rose of Lancaster, known as the War of the Roses. At this time in Ireland science and literature began to flourish again and it was decided by Queen Margaret of Ireland, consort of King O'Carroll of Ely, to invite the literati of Scotland and Ireland to a grand gathering which numbered three thousand invited them to her palace near Cileagh in Offaly. The entire assemblage were guests of this native Irish King and Queen. A second gathering took place at Rathangan, for all those who were unable to be present at the original seminar. Margaret of the hospitality is how she was mainly remembered after hosting the two incredible feasts in the year 1433. Meanwhile, around this time in Europe, society was changing and was no longer just made up of those who farmed, those who fought and those who prayed. Ships were now taking glass and wool to Asia and bringing back silks and spices. Money in the form of coins was now in circulation and peasants started to leave the land and move into towns to work for money.